Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Ann and guest host Sarita Wright are back with a new episode with guest Jim Gilligan, interim chief executive officer and chief scientific officer of Trip Therapeutics, a clinical stage biotechnology company focusing on developing psilocybin-based compounds for diseases with unmet medical needs. Jim has over 35 years of experience in the life sciences industry, including R&D, clinical development, international regulatory affairs, and CMC manufacturing. Prior to joining Trip, Jim helped lead multiple biopharma and biotech companies, including Tarsa Therapeutics, Arborium Inc., and Unigene Labs, where he was responsible for the entire spectrum of drug development activities, as well as U.S. and international regulatory strategies. Jim received his PhD in pharmacology and toxicology from the University of Connecticut and continued his post-graduation education at the Roche Institute of Molecular Biology. In this episode, our hosts explore with Jim how TRIP is working to alleviate the suffering of patients with unmet diseases like fibromyalgia and binge eating disorders, the company's ongoing clinical trials, its drug development pipeline, and what's next in the psychedelics industry. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Jim Gilligan of TRIP Therapeutics. We are talking with Jim Gilligan today of Trip Therapeutics. Um, Jim, thanks so much for coming on our little show here. If, can you just, what we love to do with our, with our guests and the, and the entrepreneurs that we talk to, tell us a little bit about yourself personally. What's your background? How did you get to this crazy industry? Well, actually, yeah, my, my background is I was interested in biology and sort of interested in medicine. I went to Bates College in Maine, and during that time, I became a little bit more interested on the research side of things rather than just becoming a physician. So um, I was really fortunate, got into the University of Connecticut in their PhD program in pharmacology. And I always like practical things. So the research I did there was heart research. I was working in atherosclerosis and did a little over a year internship at the Cleveland Clinic, learned a lot there about what was going on in coronary artery disease. And Part of life is just serendipity. Someone came to give a talk at, at the University of Connecticut and uh, asked me if I'd be interested in a postdoc at the Roche Institute of Molecular Biology, which was just a phenomenal opportunity. And so I continued my, edu my education there and did work in hypertension. And so stayed in the cardiovascular field, but that was the time, the advent of biotech, you know, uh, hence Roche Institute of Molecular Biology. And they were doing the cloning of interferon. There was a lot of excitement about biotech. It was a brand new field. And I really thought it was just a great idea. And with my background in pharmacology and how drugs work, versus what's going on in the biotech field that seemed like it was just a, a good fit. And so that's how I transitioned into, into biotech and biotech research. So then what led you to, to trip and, and what, 
<laughs> that actually sounds funny. <laughs> it was a trip. Yeah, so it, was, it was actually, and it was a long trip. So I was the the you know trying to get back into a little bit on the personal side. I remember asking my dad at the time. So what do you think? I have an opportunity to go to big pharma or a biotech a startup. He goes, well, you know, go to the biotech for three or four years, get some experience, and you can use that in the pharma industry. And I ended up being there a little bit more than three years. I was there for twenty eight years, and so that's where. I really learned the whole thing about drug development. So as you can understand, with a startup company, we had no idea what we're doing. It was a bunch of postdocs. We got money from Wall Street. We started a company and we learned uh, day to day on how how to do things. So start with preclinical, clinical, regulatory. And I did transition in 2000. I got an MBA in international business. So at a certain point, I started looking at what you might call the transactional side, trying to understand what investors wanted, what would pharma companies want to to partner. And I got an appreciation for that. That opened the door. I did a a joint venture in China for eight years and had the opportunity to do deals with like GSK, Novartis, Merck, big companies. So that 28-year period afforded me just tremendous learning opportunities that I treasure to this day. So... um and then I'm sorry, I'll, then I'll, I promise I'll pass it over to Sarita, but, but yeah. what, you know, you guys, so, so tell us a little bit about trip. Um, you're, you're focused on psilocybin. Um, you know, why psilocybin? Why are you backing one horse here? Yeah. So what, what happened in, in my, in my career, given, as you said, I'm a seasoned executive. I've been doing this for a long time. I started doing some consulting and I actually initially came into trip as a consultant and they asked me to look at one of their early assets, which was an oncology asset. I looked at that and then they have what was called the PFN program, which is uh, psilocybin for neuropsychiatric disorders. And I was actually very honest with them and said, you know, I've never really worked to really any great extent in CNS. And Mm -hmm. so it's not like that's my area of expertise. And they Mm -hmm. said, well, just look at the program and let us know what you think. And so it was actually good for me because it forced me to do a fair amount of reading to understand what was going on in that sector, what was going on in uh, the psychedelic space. And the other thing that really helped me a lot was they had Robin Carhart Harris as one of their uh, advisors. And so Robin was very kind and uh, put up with all my silly questions for weeks and weeks and really helped me understand a lot better what was going on in the field. And I was intrigued at some of the really good quality science that was actually going on. And, um, I, I just really became very interested in what the therapeutic potential could be in certain areas that I'm sure we'll discuss as we proceed with the, the discussion. All right. Well, Jim, we're going to proceed a little bit more because we do want you to go deeper with that. So given sure. your background uh, in drug development, can you explain the science behind psilocybin assisted psychotherapy treatments? For example, like how do they work and create real long term changes in patients with eating disorders? Yeah. So that's one of our areas of focus. So one of the things that struck me, again, I have a PhD in pharmacology. And so normally what you do is you take a pill and you know what's in the blood for a certain period of time, right? 10 hours, 12 hours. You know, we all get extended release drugs. You only have to take it once a day. The first thing you notice about psilocybin is that with a single administration or in some of the clinical studies, one administration followed by two or three weeks later, 
the durability of response. People continue to see an improvement one month, two months, three months, six months after the intervention. So clearly the drug isn't on board. The, the, the drug is here and gone. And what that spoke to me was that it was doing something in the, in the CNS, in the brain, that was improving what was responsible for the problem. And if you think about it, there's research that shows that um, if you look at what's neural networks, which looks like you know a, a wiring diagram, and you look at it before and after administration of psilocybin, it changes remarkably. And, and the, the whole concept of going in and trying to uh, affect what you would consider the etiologic factor, the driving force, was very intriguing to me. And, and one of the areas that we're involved in, we can come back to overeating, is in, in the pain field. And so we all know if you have a pain, you take Advil, you take, you, you take an analgesic. And what what's pretty apparent is you're not treating the cause, you're treating the symptom, right? All you're doing is alleviating and what's causing it, you might, you're, you're really not addressing at all. And when I looked at the potential for psilocybin, I realized that perhaps this is something that's actually going further up and correcting what's causing the pain, what's causing the overeating uh, disorder. And not just giving someone a pill in the, for example, in the eating area that makes them less hungry, okay? But you're actually trying to correct what's the driving force behind hyperphagia, behind overeating. So I think that was what intrigued me in the beginning to look at this totally differently from, you know, standard drug development, you know, here's your prescription, Mrs. Smith, go get it filled and take this for however long you need it. So really different paradigm. You know, when we talk about um, psilocybin specifically, uh, or, or I mean, even broadening it out to, to psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, so much of what's in the media and what people are, are talking about is for PTSD or depression, um, to a certain extent addictions, but you guys are really looking at, um, different indications, I guess, uh, um, I'm assuming, uh, eating disorders can be, I don't know if they're necessarily classified as an addiction or something separate, but can you talk about why, why these specific indications? Yeah. So look, we can start with, with, with the binge eating first. And it is a, a compulsive disorder. But one of the things that I noticed, and again, reading and getting educated in the area, was that a lot of these patients have a constellation of symptoms. It's not mm. just one issue. And so you'll see they could have anxiety around food. They could be depressed that they know they're eating too much. They have low self-esteem. So there's a number of issues that are associated with the old word symptom we're talking about, in that case, overeating. And so when we're looking at our clinical studies, we don't just look at weight. We just don't look at things like that. We look at other things that could be responsible for, for the behavior. And, you know, there is, there, there's data out of, out of Johns Hopkins on alcohol addiction, nicotine addiction, things like that. Mm -hmm. And we, again, we as trip deferred to the experts, you know, we took our ideas to experts and consulted with them to see if they thought that there would be uh, an opportunity, always in conjunction with psychotherapy. And there are other people looking in this area, if you call it eating disorders, because there's some studies now being uh, performed with anorexia nervosa, which is just the opposite. But again, it's a behavior associated with, with eating. 
And I think that would that will be the common denominator as we talk about the indications. A lot of it has to do with, with patients' behavior and how they respond to either whether it be overeating or when we get to what's called nosoplastic pain, chronic pain. So, Jim, Tripp recently announced the first dosing of the world's first FDA-regulated clinical trial for psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy targeting binge eating disorders in collaboration with the University of Florida. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you guys are doing with the University of Florida and why it's so important? Yeah, it's it's been this is one of the things that's really, truly exciting when people often throw around cutting edge. Right. And uh, but th this really is, as you mentioned, you know, as far as we know, this is the first study under F under FDA auspices that was done in binge eating. And we we as trip. And, and Ann mentioned this, we, we took a little bit different approach. We didn't go after anxiety and PTSD. We've looked at uh, hyperphagia, we've looked at uh, fibromyalgia. And we felt scientifically there was a sound rationale, but until you actually get into the clinic, you, you really don't know if all your assumptions, all your theses are going to manifest themselves. And in all our studies, we, we probably look at 15 or 16 different outcomes. We're doing fMRI, we're looking at brain imaging. We're really trying to do a very thorough analysis. And um, the team there is, is just really phenomenal. Uh, they've embraced this program. You know, the therapists went through hours and hours of training on the administration of psychedelics. We customized the psychotherapy to people with binge eating. And, I, I have four kids, but I have to tell you, I was like an expectant father waiting for the results from, from the first patient because we knew we, we knew the patient had been dosed and we're waiting for them to come back and, and what happened. And of course, Jennifer and Jesse just played it off. They're sitting there all like like this, not telling us what happened. And we're just, well, well, and they're like, you're not going to believe it. it. It was just tremendous. It exceeded our expectations. And they were ecstatic. They were just ecstatic for the patient. And it was. And, the, and are those the therapists? Yeah. The, the, okay, Jennifer, okay. Jennifer's, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Jennifer okay. Miller is the principal investigator. She's an okay. endocrinologist and Jesse's the psychologist. And we were all anxious. I mean, this was, this was a, a, a yeah. big thing. And um, as, as we reported um, there, there were, the biggest thing that they noticed is just a change in behavior and mm. just, and, and things like she, um, she was less anxious. She just was happier. Um, she seemed more, more confident. And of course, at the end, this was reflected in weight loss and all the things that we were hoping to see, but what they were more impressed with was just her, her change. I, I hate to say this, but in her personality and just, just the way she, she was. And that's, that's, that's the expectation that you're having an effect where um, you're having this benefit for the person. And in the end analysis, that's now showing it in weight reduction. But um, yeah, we were very, very pleased. And of course, it's an end of one. So as a scientist, <laughs> don't know, get too excited. Don't get too <laughs> excited. Exactly. And so but we're we're hoping we're we're doing this very thoroughly. We're hoping you know by the end of the summer to have you know four or five patients through this. And I think if we consistently see that signal, that type of response, it'll make us confident. And one of the other things that that, that you know is 
We also have TRIP 8803, which is our proprietary program. So if we continue to see this, this positive response, it gives us a great level of confidence that, hey, this would be a perfect place for us in the future to move in with 8803. Um, so yeah, it's an end of one. Fingers crossed, we continue to hope that we see similar uh, results. And um, it's, it's, it's truly exciting period. And it's, it's amazing because we have our weekly meetings with Florida, how excited they are. They're just totally pumped now, right? Because they saw these positive results. Now they can't wait to continue on. So as a team, it, it, was, it was just a good W. It was a good win so far. So you bring up... Um the, the one of the clinical candidates. Um, well, well, there's there's two. Right. So there's TRP 8802 and mm -hmm. TRP 8803. Um, can you just give a quick overview about what separates those two candidates? Sure. sure. So yeah. one of the things that that you learn when you're doing clinical research like I have for over 30 some odd years is that there's a lot of risk and it's difficult. And what you want to do in your design is you want to give your drug the best chance of success. You don't want your study not to work because you did something wrong and it, it, and it clouds what the drug could achieve. So what we elected to do was use TRIP-8802, which is the sort of the standard oral psilocybin that other people are using in their studies. And we're using that in a limited number of patients, no placebo group, to see if there's a signal, just, just as we were discussing. So we gave this, there was this really significant improvement uh, in, in, the, in the patient, and that's suggesting to us, okay, it looks like uh, psilocybin-assisted therapy would be beneficial for patients with binge eating. And we do this. Similarly, we'll do the same thing in our fibromyalgia study. We start with oral psilocybin, give it to the patients and see if there's a, a, a positive response. In parallel, we're developing 8803. And we're doing that to address a number of what you might want to call deficiencies that we see with, with orally delivered psilocybin. And one of it has to do quite simply with patient and therapist burden. The, the patient comes in, it takes an hour or two after orally administered to, to go into the psychedelic state that could last for up to eight hours. So, you know, you have the patient and the therapist in, in a room, you know, for 10, 12 hours. And so that it's a burden. And going forward, you see that there's from a commercial perspective, that might be difficult. Mm -hmm. And expensive. <laughs> and expensive, exactly. What, what I looked at, which is interesting, again, from my discussions with Robin, is he said, you know, Jim, one of the issues that we're having right now is we could have, say, a woman comes in who weighs 60 kilos. We give her the capsule, and she's looking at me saying, is this all that's going to happen? And then we have a big guy come in, a 100-kilo guy come in, and he's tripping his brains out. And I go, well, that's a little weird. And I went back, and there was some – there was actually a study done, and it was a really good study at the University of Wisconsin, where they actually weighed all the people and adjusted the dose to their weight. So if you weighed 70 kilos, when it was 0.3 megs per kg, you get 21 megs. If you're 100, you would get 30. So they literally adjusted the dose, and they gave, they had three different ranges. It was either 0.3 megs per kg, 0.45, or 0.6. And if you just looked at the nice curves in the paper, you go, oh, that, that's really, you know, as you increase dose, they get higher blood levels. 
But if you look at each of the individual patients, you saw that some of the people who got 0.3 megs per keg had higher blood levels than the ones that got a higher dose, 0.6 megs per kilo. Hmm. So if you're sitting there and you're like, okay, if someone's blood levels are so low, they're not having the full psychedelic experience, they're not going to get clinical benefit. On the other end of the spectrum, what could happen is people have side effects that could limit the clinical utility because the blood levels are too high. So I'm like, okay, well, that's a problem. Go back to what I said before. You want to give the drug the best chance at success. And so when we designed 8803, it was to make sure we could get consistent blood levels. And also, could we do it where we have better control over when the patient enters the psychedelic state, how long you're in the psychedelic state, and the, the quality of that. And so 8803 will achieve uh, all, all of those goals. And uh, again, would give us the best shot at demonstrating the clinical utility uh, in, in our studies. And, and so if you think about it, we're doing that in parallel. So we lead with 8802, okay? Is there a signal there? Is there a potential benefit? And in parallel, we're developing 8803 so that once we have identified the, the patient populations that we're interested in, we'll switch to TRIP 8803. I know that's a lot, but it, it's if you think about it, we're just doing smaller studies to get an idea handle on what to expect. The other yeah, the other thing is I mentioned that we were, we're looking at maybe 15 or 16 different clinical outcomes. By doing the preliminary study with 8802, we'll be able to focus in on those that are most critical. So we don't have to do 16 next time, maybe we only mm -hmm. do five, and we'll have a, a good idea of what we need to measure. And that will help direct us in what we want to do with 8803, which is what we expect to bring you know, successfully through the FDA registration process and, and commercialize. So would you call this um, an element of precision therapy? Um, but where, where you can kind of match the right person and whatever that may be with the correct dose. So, yeah, so that will be part of what comes out of clinical research. We, what we are thinking is that it could be even within a particular area, say someone's had binge eating and it's not as severe and it's, it's more recent, they may need, um, a, a lower dose or, or a different type of experience than someone on the chronic side. And if you start going between indications, what might be good for binge eating might not be uh, helpful for folks with fibromyalgia. So in our clinical studies, we'll optimize the dose and the regimen to the indication. The one thing that we'll be able to do with 8803 is because of our ability to, how, how we'll be administered in the formulation, we could do two things. One could be if the therapist feels that this is a really beneficial experience, they can prolong it for a certain period of time to optimize it. If on the other hand, the patient is experiencing anxiety and not having a good experience, they can terminate it, bring the patient out and then figure out what to do next time, lower dose or, or change things. So again, it gives exquisite control uh, to, to the physicians and the therapists to really give the patient the best chance at having a successful outcome. 
Okay. So Jim, can we back up here? In December, TRIP received confirmation from the FDA that it could proceed with the clinical study of TRIP 8802 in combination with psychotherapy for fibromyalgia. Can you talk to us a bit more about the work TRIP is doing in the noceo plastic pain space? Sure. And that's a mouthful, and right? Define no, that <laughs> and define that, please. Okay, yeah. So that, it was a new one on me. So what, what nosoplastic pain is, is sort of a catch-all for, in the easiest way to think, the pain that, pain that emanates from the brain. And the best example I can think of is actually phantom limb pain, where someone mm. has a tragic, traumatic loss of a limb, and then after a period of time, they have pain in a limb that no longer exists. So clearly, if, if, if you lose your arm and you have pain in that arm, it has to be coming from your brain. And so the idea is, how do you now address that when it's actually uh, originating in, in the CNS? And uh, everyone knows I always tell stories. And so one of my, my favorite stories is we're in this meeting with folks at University of Michigan, and it's all luminaries. These brilliant people, MD, PhDs, and, and they're explaining to me, oh, Jim, the second messenger, and you know, you modulate this and this, and, and I'm sitting there and, and I'm, I'm listening, I'm trying to understand, and Dr. Dan Claus there, who's sort of the wily veteran, he goes, Jim, maybe I can explain this to you. He said, the problem is the pain switch is stuck in the on position and we need to turn it off. And I go, <laughs> Dan, I understand. I think I think I get that. And so it's literally this combination of psychotherapy using psilocybin so that you can get to this point and, and turn that pain switch off. And it just when you start thinking about these neural networks, um, it makes sense. And one of the, one of the analogies I use that's a little far off, but you'll get it is how many times are you in your car and you hear a couple of chords for a song? And you just know all the words of the song. You know exactly what it is. You didn't sit there and memorize it, but there's this little neural network, this little loop that gets turned on and you know things. And that's how Dan explained. He said, Jim, believe it or not, you have to think of this as that it's memorized or learned pain. These people have had pain for so wow. long. You have this loop and it gets turned on and that's where the pain's coming from. The signal's just coming from the brain and we need to get in there in order to turn that off. And psilocybin affords us that opportunity as a tool to access that part of the subconscious, part of the brain, and um, and hopefully turn turn off that signal. And if you think about what we're talking about in, in binge eating, if there's a behavior, we need to get in and get to where that behavior exists and modify that. So there, there is this common denominator, common theme there. So with the nosoplastic pain, um, there is uh, some preclinical animal models and things out there that would suggest that psychedelics could have a benefit. Um, but again, we'll probably be the first to look at this in patients with fibromyalgia. And, um, you know, these people, a lot of them are fairly desperate. They've, they've tried some of the, the standard Drugs, uh, Lyrica, Savella, things have been approved without uh, a tremendous benefit. Uh, it's it's a little scary to think that about a third of them will resort to opiates. And we know what the issue is 
with opiate addiction. So if we can uh, provide that type of relief to these patients, I think that'd be an incredible achievement. Given your background, um, are, is being in um, the research of psychedelics medicine different from the other drugs that you've researched? You know, is there, are you finding the stigma? Are you like having to like explain yourself to former colleagues or classmates or whatever, or, or family and be like, so yeah, the company's called trip. <laughs> yeah. So there, there's different audiences. My kids think it's incredible. My son yeah. goes, yeah, what are you, you're back in the sixties now? <laughs> I'm like, well, not exactly, but it's probably the area of research that they've been most interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, I'll tell you what's interesting. If you look at the field right now and you look at places like Johns Hopkins and Yale and Harvard, all these uh, Imperial College in London, I can go on and on and on, UCSD, UCSF, people are, are really doing cutting edge clinical research to understand this. And again, I've, I've been incredibly fortunate to meet with a number of really, really smart people. And I was at a meal at, in UCSF. I won't go through who I was with, but we were there. And so they asked me a question like you might uh, ask and say, so Jim, what are you really trying to accomplish with your clinical studies with psilocybin? And I trying to think of something either clever or not, not to look like I didn't know what I was talking about. And I said, well, if you think about it, we're trying to demystify the mystical experience. We're trying to understand. And he just thought it was a great answer. So uh, I, I stick with that. But we really are. We're trying to get a better understanding of how, why, why there's a benefit, how it works. Is there a way to improve it? So um, it's, I, I think we're fortunate. I love the, the idea that uh, these credible institutions feel that there's uh, an opportunity here in doing good research. No, no quick and dirties, not taking shortcuts, but really pledge to doing, you know, state of the art clinical research and trying to understand how it works. And certainly there's significant unmet medical need in all the areas out there. So, you know, whether it's, you know, treatment resistant depression, PTSD, whatever, all of those are, are un, have unmet needs now. So I, I hope they're all successful because patients need it. Definitely. Now, Jim, moving into the future, what are some themes that you think will be present in the psychedelic industry within the coming year? You know, will we ever get to a point where we'll have psychedelics in our medicine cabinet the same way we've got our Tylenol and Aleve? Do you think that is even a possibility? All right. So that's 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 a tricky question. So I'm going to answer it the following way. Um, what what we're doing right now, we think that initial therapy will be embedded with psychotherapy. And we think it's it's important. And from again, the folks like like uh, Robin and 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 other folks that we we talk to, people at Fluence, they feel that the quality of the experience is important. And that you know they call the therapists, you know, the, the tour guides, the travel guides, to help them on their trip. Mm -hmm. And and so I've been convinced that that's an important component of the treatment. Now, having said that. And it's early stages. 
I I am thinking forward where say you have, you know, a an intervention, a full psychedelic experience, whether that's one or two, whatever, and you achieve a certain benefit. Is there an opportunity in the future for what I'm calling, and this is just me, you know, not not the, the smart people, a maintenance dose, something where you could give maybe a lower dose with telemedicine, something where you could do something that maintains the benefit that you've you've uh, be able to achieve. And it's so early on, it's easy for me to say that because I don't think anybody knows, but certainly I think that could be the case. I, I don't, from an ethical standpoint, I don't see people just getting a bottle of psilocybin pills that they just take whenever they want because it's not really the approach uh, that we're taking. And so it could, but I, I just foresee it more either there'll be, you know, and, and there's a number of drugs now that you take once every six months. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that it could be where, you know, you go and you talk to the therapist and you're fine, or, you know, they say, okay, we'll come in and, you know, we'll have another intervention. So it could be periodic during the year, but even if you had to go three times a year and you're not, you know, in, in the case of people with antidepressants, taking antidepressants every single day or whatever, I think that's still a huge benefit. Um, and I, I think from a pharmacoeconomic standpoint, it, it's, a, it's a huge benefit. So um, it's still early, uh, but if I had to guess, I, I think that um, it'll be in a more controlled environment than just handing out a prescription for people to go home, put in their medicine cabinet. Yeah. Um, I find your humility funny that you're, you're talking about other smart guys, yet you're, you're sitting here with your PhD and your MBA. So <laughs> I think you're probably one of the smarter guys in the room. <laughs> well, I, I think what I am is I'm a pretty good listener. And I, I, as they say, I know what I don't know. So you surround your pe- you surround yourself with really smart people, and then it makes you look a little smarter. So, and that's exactly what we did. You know, be one of the best groups out there in in nose of plastic pain are the folks at University of Michigan. So, you know, we're we're aligned with them, so it makes us look a lot smarter. You know, when you get to be you know be able to call up Robin Carhart Harris and, and speak with him, you sort of have a pretty good insight into what's going on. <laughs> in the field. And, and so you have that benefit. I, I look at, I, I have been doing this for a long time and I know a lot about, you know, drug discovery, drug development, but I also realize that this is a brand new area and you, you, you can't go in with the, you know, round peg square hole. You really have to go in open-minded. And when, when you were asking about drug development, I'll give you a, a perfect example. You know, you get a clinical protocol and it says, you know, the drug will be administered with, with trained psychotherapists. Okay, so that's a line in your clinical protocol that goes to FDA. Where do you find psychotherapists are trained on the administration of psychedelics who can do that for mm-hmm. you? And mm-hmm. so that's part of what where we're at. We're at the forefront, but we're addressing the, the these issues. Um, and but it's also exciting because it hasn't been done before. So it's uh, yeah. It's, what are you most excited? This is the last question. So thank okay. you so much for your time. But what are you most excited about for the next year? 
I, I think I think the advancing field and our ability to start getting answers to our primary questions. Do we see a signal, continued signal in binge eating disorder? And hopefully um, in the area of pain, nosoplastic pain, we, we start seeing a similar result. And then that that could have a, a tremendous benefit in other areas of nosoplastic pain, like phantom limb, like complex regional pain, so other things. So I think if we can generate good quality data that meets the scrutiny of, of clinical professionals, it just elevates the whole field where they're, they're really, as my old boss used to say, is there a there there? So if we could show that there's a there there, I mm-hmm. think it'll, it'll attract more people get involved in the field. And I have to tell you, every day I get multiple emails from patients either with binge eating disorder or fibromyalgia have tried many, many different approaches. They're desperate. So if we, the reason I got in this field was to help people. And so you you have this altruistic interest in trying to help people. And that's going to be the most exciting. If we get the signal that these, this is working and that we can start implementing 8803, that's going to be incredibly exciting. And, uh, and it's, it's, closer than we think, hopefully, you know, we'll know that in the next six or 12 months. Well, I think you should come back in the next six or 12 months and, and tell us about uh, all of your success. So we're, we're definitely excited to follow. Um, and Jim Gilligan, uh, the interim CEO um, and chief scientific officer, gosh, you're busy, uh, yeah. of Trip Therapeutics. Thank you so much for coming on today. Well, I thank, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Really great to meet everyone and have this opportunity. Thanks. Our thanks to Jim Gilligan, interim chief executive officer and chief scientific officer of Trip Therapeutics. Check them out at triptherapeutics.com. That's T R Y P Therapeutics, T H E R A P E U T I C S.com. As always, if you want to reach out to us, email us with any questions or comments at case at greenrush at kcsa.com. Check us out on Twitter at the underscore greenrush, Instagram, the greenrush underscore podcast, uh, and chat with us. We always look forward to your comments.